I hope I haven't got the graveyard slot, which is the, the, the sleepiest one after lunch. But um, <laughs> so I hope I can keep okay. you all alive and um, thinking about shrinking regions and what to, what to do. Um, I've got a lot of slides on this presentation. I'm going to skip through a lot of them because you've seen um, much of it already in, in the previous presentations. And really, if you, if you want to look at it in more detail, I, think it, I believe it's all going to be uploaded onto a website, isn't it? So um, you, can, you can look at it a bit more carefully uh, at that time. But uh, this research comes out of um, the book that um, Shaw very kindly <coughs> mentioned, um, Japan Shrinking Regions in the 21st Century. It was really a, a big group study that uh, gathered together um, uh, both national level and international studies with uh, local level case studies across the whole Japanese archipelago. And what I uh, want to talk about today is sort of developing out of that in terms of broadening its geographical scope to include a little bit about New Zealand, hopefully at the end, um, but also um, to uh, take the argument a bit forward, um, take some of the ideas forward to incorporate issues to do with ecology and environment. Um, so, really, the whole of the post-war period saw Japan's population age structure and spatial distribution change. Um, and in the 21st century, in fact in 2008, Japan's population began to shrink. And this is the story, really, of that process um, uh, and its consequences, potentially for, for Japan and potentially other countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, Really, the story, it asks that what I want to ask is, is, or talk about is this issue, is that um, many assume that depopulation will deliver some easy environmental gains, perhaps even, even some easy social gains, um, uh, a so-called depopulation dividend. Um, I coined that term, by the way. I hope you can remember it and use it later. Um, so, for example, at the Paris... COP meeting in December, there was a, an organization that distributed these postcards around the event. Um, the, the, these were apparently the, the environmental consequences of, of overpopulation, with the implication being that if we didn't have so many people on Earth, many of these things wouldn't occur, or they would perhaps occur in, in less dramatic fashion. Um, it's a very seductive logic, but is it true? So, these are my research questions. Does depopulation have to produce uncomfortable outcomes? Um, can we begin even to, to embrace it, even benefit from it? We've already heard a little bit about that today. Um, and to what extent are any anticipated benefits realistically achievable? And I think that third question really is the key to what I want to um, start to grapple with and, and any <coughs> feedback or, or uh, input from the audience would be really very welcome on that particular question. Um, some research questions that emerge from the Japanese experience. Well, what does a post-growth Asia-Pacific society really look like? Can the Asia-Pacific region realize this depopulation dividend if we know that populations are shrinking and they're going to be shrinking long <coughs> into the future? Um, and what could, what therefore could a post-growth Asia-Pacific society look like? Populations are getting older. The World Health Organization is extremely concerned. <clears throat> if we look at this map here of the world, we can see that countries with more than 30% of the population uh, aged 60 years or older in, tw in, uh, in 2050 
are these dark blue countries, 10 to 20, 30, 10 to 30 percent of the light blue countries, and so on. And Japan and China and South Korea in, and Taiwan, uh, in, in East Asia, Thailand here, also New Zealand, and Canada and Chile in the Asia-Pacific region. So this isn't just a Japanese thing. Uh, it's not just an old world thing in, the terms, of, in terms of Japan and uh, Western Europe, but it incorporates countries such as New Zealand and Canada and Chile where we wouldn't normally consider aging and depopulation to be particular issues. In fact, New Zealand and Canada, in our imagination, normally are countries that have, uh, we have an image of those countries being young, vigorous, um, plenty of people wanting to go and live there, lots and lots of young people, uh, very economically active entrepreneurs wanting to go and live in these countries and very dynamic economies and societies. In fact, that is changing. Um, on, in Canada, particularly on, in, on the Pacific side, in British Columbia in, and in New Zealand here, uh, we see two examples in the so-called new world of aging and potentially depopulating countries. Another issue is uh, uh, very extreme uh, uh, urbanization. So the Tokyo-Yokohama area is 29.8% of the nation's population in one settlement. Um, a strong unipolar concentration. In Auckland here we can see that 29.1% of New Zealand's population is concentrated in one settlement. Again, a very strong unipolar concentration, at least economically speaking. Of course, we know that the capital is in Wellington. So, what does a post-growth Asia-Pacific society look like? Well, that's Japan's population pyramid as it moves from <coughs> 1955 through to 2013. This portion here, the so-called baby boomers and the baby boomer echo generations, are moving up the pyramid. That's Japan's demographic dividend, or the, the, the period in the second half of the 20th century which provided Japan with the human capital to be able to realize its explosive economic growth in the uh, second half of the 20th century. But we see here that um, not only are there very few children being born, but also very large numbers of older people, people growing into extreme old age, which is a very different scenario from what Japan was experiencing in the 1950s. That's represented in another way. We here have here a young population, and later on in the second half of the 20, first half of the 21st century, a very old population, and a growing and a shrinking <coughs> population. A very large workforce in the second half of the 20th century, and a smaller workforce in the first half of the 21st century. Same thing is happening in South Korea and China. So the red is Japan, the blue is China, the green is South Korea. Very, very similar paths into and through and out of growth. Uh, Age-related age dependency ratios are also very similar across the three countries with Japan's um, most economically advantageous period uh, in the 1980s and 90s. And then uh, a rise in the age-related dependency ratio after that. And of course, China and South Korea following very, very similar circumstances. This, this is what it looks like spatially, very strong growth and urbanization in the um, economic growth period from the 1950s through to the 1980s, and then stagnation from the 1990s, and we're now in this period, in the 2010-2030 period, nearly everywhere is blue, which means shrinkage, and we can see very clearly that shrinkage is no longer a rural phenomenon. 
it's no longer a factor, an unfortunate, unintended consequence of growth, that shrinkage is, becomes the new normal. Shrinkage, indeed, is as much an urban phenomenon as it is a rural phenomenon. That's what happens regionally. This is Niigata Prefecture, and this very, very similar patterns uh, are mirrored at a lower scale of analysis at, at the regional and even at the sub-regional level. What has this produced? Well, we can see massive-scale urbanization in the Tokyo-Yokohama area, very, very high-density living, high-rise multi-use urban functions, sophisticated, high-cost infrastructure. And what do we see in rural areas? Well, it's very common these days in Japan to see abandoned homes. This was a farmhouse. It's now populated by a, a band of cats. Abandoned farmland. Bankrupted businesses, retail deserts, empty guest houses, disused and decaying infrastructure, collapsed industries, ghost towns, more ghost towns. What are we seeing in Japan? Well, are we seeing two types of shrinkage? The first is economic shrinkage, very dramatic collapse of a local industry, here it was coal mining, producing a very substantial and rapid outflow of population. This can normally be stabilized. <coughs> some, uh, for example, if we look at the case of Sheffield in the 1970s and 80s, experienced a collapse in the steel and engineering industries. In the 1990s and 2000s, Sheffield has turned around and is now a very prosperous city and is inviting more and more people to come and live there, experienced a, a, a very rapidly shrinking population in the 1980s and 90s, and now is one of Britain's most rapidly growing cities. This prompts some to ask why regional shrinkage in Japan is a problem. Lots of Americans say to me, look, there are ghost towns all over the United States. What's the problem? Well, there's also demographic shrinkage going on. The demographic dividend this growth phase is both an outcome and a cause of low fertility. Low fertility results in an aging society and eventually, if it carries on, if circumstances persist, population loss. It begins in geographical, geographically peripheral areas and isolated communities. We heard about those in, in the previous presentation. It spreads to include towns and cities as aging and the population deepen. You can see that on, on those spatial representations, those maps I showed you earlier. But there's also the third which is disasters. And we can assume that in the future, not only is Japan prone to what we call natural disasters, uh, these, these disasters occur in Japan perhaps more commonly than in many other countries, but that we can assume in the future that many of these disasters will increase in intensity and duration and in their sheer number. Japan is experiencing both, or all three, at uh, 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 types of shrinkage, at all three basic scales of spatial analysis. We're looking at local, regional, and national scales of spatial analysis. That's Vikazen Takata in Tohoku, in um, Iwate Prefecture, um, uh, two or three months after the um, tsunami. The town has been swept away. That's Vikazen Takata, uh, nearly two years after the disaster. That's Ishinomaki, 
a few months after the disaster. That's Ishinomaki nearly two years after the disaster. So we can see here Rikuzen Takata uh, in 2005 was 24,000 people, 2010 was 23,000 people. That was its age structure in 2010, very aged community, a hyper-aged community. And confirmed dead, 7.3% of the population died in that disaster on the 11th of March 2011. And uh, a significant number moved out of the town. Um, the population in 2014, I'm going to have to update this, it's a bit of an old slide, was 20,426. So between 2010 and 2012, the population decreased by 15%. If a town decreases by 1% per year metronomically, it takes 72 years for that town to disappear entirely. This town was de dis decreased by 15% in the space of three years. Ishinomaki, the largest town on the coast of um, Tohoku, very similar phenomenon but m more muted. But nevertheless, in that three-year, four-year period, we see a 7-8% decrease in the population. What are the consequences? Well, the consequences basically are the end of growth. 21st century Japan is a society where gaps in well-being between groups and individuals are assumed to be emerging and widening. We very often hear the expression kaksa shakai. Wealth and income gaps, quality of life gaps, gaps in life chances, and one of these is the gap between urban and rural Japan. With the onset of national scale shrinkage, the areas caught in this rural decline trap are broadening to include provincial towns and cities. Revitalization, if that means growth, and that's the big if, becomes impossible for most areas because one community's expansion mathematically requires another to shrink. Now, we know that Tokyo is continuing to grow. It will continue to grow right the way through to 2020. You just do the maths. If Tokyo continues to grow and the, population, the national population shrinks, what happens to every other community in Japan? it has to fight a really big struggle even to avoid shrinking further, let alone actually grow itself. So what's the alternative? Is a depopulation dividend achievable? Well, what is it, first of all? Any benefits, it, I, I've defined it here as any benefits for socially and environmentally sustainable living that can be gained from depopulation. It must occur in peacetime, and it must be via non-coercive means. So, reduction, there, there are possible reductions in energy, water, food, resource consumption, consumption gains. There could be biodiversity and ecosystem benefits. There could be land improvements in, in living space and uh, uh, in, improvements in terms of uh, quality of life through, through better land management, more space. Improved well-being and strengthening resilience, perhaps. We've heard some of that today um, through, for example, the Chitas Law movement. Social benefits could be greater gender equality, ethnic diversity, less crime, even an improvement in the international order. Lee Kuan Yew, for example, proposed the idea that shrinking countries and aging countries are less prone to go to war with each other because their younger people are so precious that they don't want to sacrifice them on the battlefield. Is it really happening? 
Well, I looked at energy data from Japan from 1990 through to 2012. This is recently updated. This is the most recent data from the energy agency. Red are shrinking prefectures, energy consumption and carbon output. And blue are growing prefectures, energy consumption and carbon output. And lo and behold, shrinking prefectures, energy consumption and carbon output is increasing more rapidly than growing prefectures. Depopulation dividend? Easy environmental gain? Perhaps not. But change in per capita energy consumption in Japan by prefecture, we see that those, those prefectures whose populations are shrinking on the left-hand side of the bold vertical line have the highest growth in energy consumption. And those prefectures on the right-hand side of the vertical line, which are, have growing populations, have either stable energy consumption or decreasing energy consumption. The same for carbon output. Energy consumption went down in two of Japan's 25 shrinking prefectures in the period 1990 to 2012. And in five of Japan's 22 growing prefectures in the same period, it went down. There's also the question of biodiversity, and my friend Dennis Normile recently published an article in the journal Science investigating the issue of biodiversity as a result of the abandonment of farmland in Japan, um, uh, rice paddies. And he found, and through his research and through combining his research with others' research, that biodiversity gains are not only not being achieved in the, in the areas around rice paddies, that biodiversity is going down with the abandonment of land. That land continued human presence on the land is maintaining biodiversity rather than harming it within this so-called Satoyama agricultural system. Well, what does this mean? Resource consumption, carbon output, biodiversity gains from population decline may be harder to achieve than we expect. What are the implications of that? Well, the requirements for more there are requirements for more research into the environmental consequences of depopulation. What we assume will happen as a result of depopulation may not really be happening. The evidence from Japan, I think, is quite strong. It's quite surprising, in, in my opinion. There are also requirements, perhaps, for internationally coordinated structural intervention by government. It's not markets will not just deliver these gains um, without us really thinking about it and, and uh, trying to do something about it. So now let's go to the last part where I want to look at uh, specific communities in Japan and in New Zealand. What could a post-growth Asia-Pacific society look like? Well, are there examples of communities that are focusing on well-being, on strengthening resilience and achieving a depopulation dividend? Sado Island in the Japan Sea um, is Japan's fifth largest island. No, sixth largest island, sorry. Um, is perhaps one place where, in parts of the island society, this is beginning to happen. This is based around the notion uh, that the mayor of Sado, the previous mayor of Sado, coined um, 
which was uh, to try and make the island society into Sumiyasu Itokoro, um, a place uh, that is pleasant to live in. Um, it's a focus on well-being in the broadest sense, physiological, emotional, socio-economic and environmental. It's not anti-growth, but it's an acknowledgement that growth is no longer possible. And it's a search for an alternative to prioritizing growth. Centered around using this bird here, the toki, the crested ibis, as a symbol, a symbolic marker for the regeneration of the island. Uh, the population of that island, in, of that bird in all of Japan, went down to one solitary individual bird that was living in Sado. Of course, one bird can't reproduce. <laughs> So they brought in some birds from China alone. <laughs> and uh, the numbers of these birds are now uh, increasing in Sado. It, it was persecuted mercilessly by farmers because the bird's beak would poke through the plastic underlying um, uh, the rice paddies as well as uh, eat up a lot of the, the grubs that were useful in the, in, in the rice um, growing process. Sado, with the uh, Noto Hanto, the Noto Peninsula in Ishikawa Prefecture, is, has been granted now a globally important agricultural heritage status by the Food and Agriculture Organization. They are the only place in the developed world that has been awarded this status. Every single other award of this status is in developing countries, so it's really quite a notable example of turning around an agricultural system. Their slogan is reviving food, reviving life, reviving Japan. They want to show leadership for the rest of Japan. There's the action plan, you can read it later if you like. It's about sport and health and personal well-being. This is, Sado now is host to a grade one or grade A um, triathlon event. It's, it's uh, equivalent to the Hawaii Ironman event. Um, and they use this as an opportunity to not only to draw tourists into the into the island for that for that very short period when the when the event is going on, but they they use it as a as an opportunity to um, talk about health and exercise and cycling and swimming and running, and to show citizens that the island's roads and uh, natural uh, formations can be used for the improvement of physical well one's own physical well-being. It's also using native attributes to reach out beyond the community, the region, and the nation. This Chita Slow movement, I think, is very, very interesting. Sado is a member of the Sikri Network, the Small Islands Cultures Research Initiative. And they invited people from small islands from all over the world to Sado for a big conference. Uh, the fifth International Small Islands Conference uh, was held there. Um, they exchanged information, ideas, and so on about what it takes to build a sustainable and uh, pleasant and prosperous island community. It's about using culture and uh, again using native attributes. This is the uh, Kodor um, drum group. They're a world famous drum group. Inter interestingly, none of the members of this drum group are actually natives of Sado Island, despite this form of music being a native form of music to the island. And sake. Uh, here is a Hokusetsu, is a, a very famous sake brewer. 
one of only five remaining sake breweries on Sado Island. They, during the Meiji period, there were about 120. There are now five. He supplies sake to the Nobu restaurant chain, and he's now uh, one of. He counts Robert De Niro as one of his friends as a result of his. Um, apparently, they get very drunk together. Um, <laughs> Film tourism, this shrine here was, a, was a, 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 the set used for the production of a horror film. And uh, it's kind of spooky. Uh, and uh, this area, this little part of the island is experiencing a, a, a sort of a mini boom in film tourism. And uh, ecotourism to the original growth temperate rainforest in the, in the north eastern part of the island. What you see here is the build-up of a number of different initiatives using the assets that the island already possesses and combining them to try and build a more complex, sustainable and resilient society. And it's really very different from the Ippin or is it Ippon? Ippin Isson movement of earlier generations that focused on one village, one product. In this scenario, we've got one village, one community, and many, many products. Let's turn to New Zealand and see what's happening there. You remember I said we don't normally think of New Zealand in this way? Well, in South Island, there are many communities, in more or less the whole of South Island in New Zealand is experiencing aging and depopulation. Many um, uh, some communities even facing um, total collapse. This is from Dunedin, which is, by New Zealand standards, quite a large settlement. Uh, by British standards, is sort of medium-sized. By Japanese standards, is small. <coughs> and one thing that they are using in many areas of New Zealand is public art as a method of showing pride in one's community, developing cohesiveness uh, in a community through the use and, and display of public art. This is one community here called Ohai and Nightcaps. It's two little communities really uh, and separated just by a road really. They're collapsing in the bottom part of South Island. The Southland District Council is very concerned about these communities. It's an old coal mining settlement and they want to revitalize this community. You can tell that this community is collapsing because anywhere in New Zealand where the rugby posts are falling down <laughs> means that that town is in real trouble. Yeah. Nearby is this cycling trail where they've converted the old railway line into a tourist attraction and something uh, 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 a, civil a civic amenity for local people to use. And indeed, people are actually now starting to use that cycle trail, not just for day trips or longer trips, but even for commuting. Talking about Chita Slow. This is a cafe along the cycle track there, and they're using art in the cafe as a method of distinguishing themselves showing pride in their cafe, attracting people into the cafe. And they're using the attributes of the local, the old agricultural system, plus 
new wave artifacts and combining them to create a really nice ambiance. And this cafe is about three years old. It's crowded every single day. This is a huge art installation at a, an old gold mining town in the northern part of South Island, actually the central northern part of South Island. There's a bird here, bird in, and painting installations, uh, some, an architectural installation here, and an indoor architectural installation here. Um, the town actually has, has less than 100 people living there, but um, this is what they're doing. On the way to a town called Port Chalmers, a local artist has started painting the bus stops and a railway shed. To, and the, the local council are encouraging and paying for this in order to encourage people to use local public transport rather than to um, use their own cars. And it seems to be working, apparently. This is Port Chalmers here, where people are actually taking, putting up public art installations of their own. Um, this lady here runs a cafe and she had this flower painted on the side of her cafe. There's the use of the old railways here, the rails, in, for, um, to set out a parking, parking area. But this, old, this was a gold mine, it's now a, a, a lake for swimming and sunbathing and just leisure. And even this collapsing house here, the owner has painted tulips on um, on the windows, the boarded up windows to kind of, I don't know, somehow contribute. Um, this is a town here called Katikati in North Island. It's quite close to, it's about an hour's drive from Hamilton in the centre of North Island. Um, and here they have a competition every year for an artist, a local artist, to paint a picture that in some way connects with the town's history, its personalities, um, uh, features of the town and, and the, winner, the winner gets to paint their picture on the side of a building somewhere in the town. There are now more than, more than 30 of these, of these pictures all over the town and it attracts a very sizable uh, tourist revenue. On the back of that, individual citizens have then started to develop their own artistic contributions to the town. So these sculptures for example, are private initiatives that the town hasn't financed, but were encouraged, the people in the town were encouraged to, to develop this on the back of the, the, the competition for painting on the sides of walls. And here is just a pop-up art installation. Someone's um, done a, a, a chalk drawing on the, on the pavement outside the health store there. Okay, so we've got one more minute. Achieving the depopulation dividend. Well, how do we do it? This is my contribution. I don't know how... Uh, it, it comes out of my research and, and uh, combining uh, research with, with my colleagues, particularly for the book I showed you earlier on. So, towns will experience shrinkage and try to regrow. They'll acknowledge that regrowth strategies then have failed. They then acknowledge and accept shrinkage as a fact of life. <coughs> but, and then they develop strategies to realize a depopulation dividend. And through the realization of this depopulation dividend, they can achieve community revitalization. But revitalization is no longer a synonym for growth. 
It could be growth, it's not anti-growth, but that's not the purpose. What does this research mean? Well, I think there is potential to decouple the link between growth and well-being. In the 20th century, the two things have been very, very uh, structurally linked. And to manage decline to enhance well-being by developing a new citizen ikigai, or that which makes life worth living. But evidence suggests that this may be more difficult to achieve than many currently assume. Remember the energy and the biodiversity data? There is a need to develop, therefore, accurate and precise tools for assessing whether strategies for rural and regional sustainability and revitalization actually succeed, whether they attain the goals set that people set for themselves, and whether a depopulation dividend can or is be really being achieved. And the third thing is, is that maybe the, the, there is an expected future incidence of large-scale techno-environmental shocks across the whole Western Pacific region, combined with reduced family and community resilience, places greater responsibility to invest in resilience-building measures. And the two questions, sort of idealistic questions I'd like to finish up with, to ask the audience as much as myself, is could rural areas play a role in leading urban Japan into a depopulation dividend. It is normally assumed in geography and, and in, in many other um, disciplines that urban areas are at the vanguard of social, economic, political, cultural change. That rural areas are sort of behind, lagging. Well maybe, in the, and that's a very 20th century phenomenon, that way of thinking, I think. Maybe in the 21st century we can start thinking that rural areas have something to teach urban areas. Maybe even rural areas take the lead and be in the vanguard of achieving this depopulation dividend. And even more idealistically, to suggest that Japan, because of its role as a lead goose, remember, you know the lead, the, the, the the flying geese economic development uh, theory of, of Akamatsu in the 1950s, that Japan was going to lead the rest of Asia out of poverty and into prosperity economically, and to some extent Japan did that. Well, maybe Japan could be the lead goose in the 21st century in leading the Asia-Pacific region as a whole into a post-growth future. Thank you very much. <laughs>